All right, you guys, turn back in your Bibles or whatever form of God's word you may have. And if you don't have it, we have one for you. It's called the big screen. You won't be able to get away from scripture for the next hour and a half. You are a captive of the word of God today. God is good. You might as well tell the truth. God is good. All of that which we just celebrated came through a fight. It all came through a fight. Everything that the Christian is going through is a battle. And that we can celebrate fatherhood and motherhood and male and female and family and grandchildren. And that in the context of the church is God's revelation from the beginning. That was his plan all along to fill the earth with families at the hierarchical level of God and man and woman and children and replenish the earth with men and women operating out of the Imago Day. That is what is under attack today. At every element of that hierarchy, we are attacked as men. We are attacked as women. We are attacked as husbands and fathers and parents and children. And you need to know that. You need to know the war is on because God's way is being completely and systematically torn apart. And it's been that way for a long time. I am sure some of you, if you're listening to me with sobriety, will acknowledge that you did not take God seriously when you heard the warning 20 years ago. You didn't take him serious. You didn't take him serious enough. Am I telling the truth? You say, yeah, pastor, we heard you talking about this stuff 20 years ago. But I didn't take you serious about what it means to be a man of God. I didn't take you serious about what it means to be a woman of God. I certainly didn't take you serious about what it means to be a husband and wife and certainly a mother and a father because we allowed the enemy in. We might as well be honest about it. Angelo just told you there's not a just man in this room. We're all sinners. And we have to tragically own the fact that we didn't do the due diligence that the word of God warned us about. So I'm going to be telling you over the course of the next several months that the big responsibility that you and I have above even fighting this system is making sure we're right with God ourselves. Because if we don't, we will never win that battle. That battle will not be won until your own obedience is captivated. That's the struggle we're dealing with. And see, the enemy, guess what? The enemy wants you to keep acting like you always have acted. Because he knows that your behavior, my behavior, hasn't worked. He's fine with you just staying right where you are, behaving the same way you always have behaved. Don't change nothing. Don't modify nothing. Don't repent. Don't acknowledge your contribution to this jacked up system. Don't recognize that we are at some degree responsible for our choice making that opened the door to bring us into captivity and slavery. He's fine with you continually blaming it on the left and blaming it on the right and blaming it on the government instead of taking responsibility for yourself. Now, let's go to work 
because this is a fight that we cannot avoid. This is a fight that we cannot avoid. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, may we be able to map your eternal truth on our present cultural situation and give us the lens of your perspective to help us identify what we are dealing with today. Arise, move, and go is the idea of being alert enough to be able to get out of harm's way when they put their bullseye on you. Arise, move, and go is the a concept and idea that God gives you and I enough grace to function intuitively when we are dealing with traps surrounding us so we can get out of those traps and reposition ourselves in the will of God so we can continue advancing towards God's will in our life. Arise, move, and go is the idea that God has a place for us to go and every part of the advancement, every part of the journey is going to be met with some kind of trial or another. We are engaging in 42 encampments, are we not? To get to the promised land, metaphorically and historically speaking, and Israel has already had some challenges, has she not? She's up against what we will call, and I'll explain it here in a moment, a fight that we cannot avoid. See, here's what God knew about the children of Israel that he called out of Egypt, that they didn't come out as a real army of soldiers ready to fight a battle against their foes day one. He brought them out of Egypt as a bunch of slaves that were culturally trained to submit to the tyrannical hierarchy of Pharaoh and Egyptian ideology and culture and construct. Did that make some sense? The people that he brought out of Egypt were slaves. They had a slave mentality. They had a slave subordination. They had a slave propensity. They had a slave inclination. They were slaves to the Egyptian system. And as I told you last week, they were for all intents and purposes Egyptian. Now, God had claimed them for himself. He had bought them by his blood. He had put it on the doorpost and he liberated them from captivity from the greatest government in the world at that time. And it was seen publicly by all the other nations. So they heard the reputation of Yahweh, Jehovah, bringing God's people out. Are y'all hearing me? Now, the people that he brought out are a people who also are in transition. Take the note. Because the enemy loves to parody everything that God is doing. The people of God are in transition. We're in transition from being slaves to being free men and women. We're in transition from being servants of Pharaoh to servants of the true and the living God. We're in transition from being in bondage to paganism and idolatry to becoming servants and sons of the one true and living God. He's liberating us from slavery to sonship. Is that your Bible? Your Bible makes it very plain that all who are truly born again have become sons and daughters of God. And we are learning how to live freely according to the dictates and rules of our new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the paradigm here. You with me? But please understand that this process of learning is a long, arduous process 
that requires an overseer who not only knows where we are going, but how to get us there. And while he is taking us there, grow us up out of slavery into sonship so we can walk in that freedom wherewith Christ has set us free and then make us an army for the true and the living God in order to bring the kingdom of God into a world that's hostile to Christ. That's the context of the message that we're dealing with. Does it make sense so far? All right, so the way we want to work with this is as I have it in my first point, and I want you to see it clearly in verse 18, the opposition of Amalek. You see it. Notice what what the writer says, what the author says over in verse 18 of our text in chapter um, 17 of, uh, of our text. Notice what he says over in verse eight. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Do you see that? Right. So now the only reason this makes sense and is significant to us is because God has just brought us to Rephidim. Remember? And he has done a massive miracle in Rephidim. This is a narrative, you guys. That means we are continuing a story. We are not at the end of a story. We're not at the beginning. We are continuing a previous chapter. Are y'all with me? In the previous chapter, buttresses right up against this for a reason. As God is actually proving himself to be God, remember their question was, is God among us? As God is proving himself to be God, guess what he knows? There is a nation that was watching them afar off when they were even struggling in Egypt. When God was beating down all of the gods of Pharaoh, they were watching. Whoa, what, whoa, what, what is going on in Egypt? Again, they were watching all of the Twitter feeds. They saw all of the news on Facebook. They were watching the reports. They saw what was going on way over there and it was threatening them. Because you see, when you have a people that can rise up against a government like, like Egypt, at that time, the particular kings of Egypt at that time were no joke. It was a prominent power base, okay? An aristocratic power base of dynasties that had been operating for, for many hundreds of years at that time. And for Israel to be brought up out of it, as all of the countries were already used to believing that the only way that you could extirpate yourself from any other power is that a God delivers you. A God delivers you. And they're watching Israel come out of Egypt come through the Red Sea, make their way down the southern coast, as I taught you last week, and they're moving into the Rephidim area. Well, guess what? There are two nations in the wilderness area as Bedouin uh, armies and as Bedouin rulers that are highly interested as to what this group of new people are going to do as they pass through our territory. And guess what? This is what you know about life. I know you know this. Here's what you know. You can't go anywhere you want to in the world without being confronted by some government system. See, all right, hurry up and get rid of the Reader's Digest. I know we're in church, but I am teaching you things that are concrete reality. As you know, you and I are always fighting against mysticism and, and, and postmodern irrational fantasy thought. This is, a, this is a bad problem for Christians. 
Because we're so used to the pulpit being a place for BS and crap and, and all kinds of stuff that does not correspond with sound reality. We're used to it. So, you know, pastor is just going to give us another story that's not anchored in history, nor in science, nor in logic, nor in any kind of legitimate testimonial credible sources. So we're going to buy it. We're going to go amen. Then we're going to leave. But some of us know that the biblical record is accurate and true. Because the scholars have been fighting over these things for hundreds of years. And it gives us, who are apologetic teachers, credibility when we tell you about the history. Now the application is spiritual and God has to open your eyes to it. The application is always spiritual and God has to open your eyes to it. And what we're dealing with in this historical narrative is the fact that you can't just go over into Canada without getting checked at the border. You're not going to Mexico. You're not even going intramurally in America to any other state without being checked at borders. Well, that's that's being wiped out right now in America, quite frankly. But that's another conversation around the world in general. You don't just get to willy nilly, uh, if you will, just peruse and and meander through people's countries. Those governments are going to check you to make sure you don't have some malevolent agenda when you come their way. Am I making some sense? And you got to either pull your card and give your identification and make sure you're sincere about going their way or they're going to arrest you. That's what's going on in our text. What's going on in our text is that Amalek, the king of the Amalekites, One of the seven major nations that God said you got to deal with. You got to deal with seven nations larger and greater than you. Okay, we'll get to that down the line. But he's saying for you to get to the promised land. Sometimes you got to what? Fight. That's why my message right now is a fight that we cannot what? That's because up to now, God in his mercy Actually, knew Israel wasn't ready to fight. He knew that. He knew that they weren't prepared. They were having enough problems trying to figure out which direction to make the GPS go so they can get to where they are being headed to go. And you and I have already seen that we are struggling with them actually submitting to the authority of God in their life. Is that true? That's where you and I are. We got a new savior for the children of Israel And they're struggling with submitting to him. Now, how are you going to struggle with submitting to your leader and run up on a battle where your leader is in conflict with another leader and you're not ready to deal with the conflict if you're not willing to submit to your leader? Am I making some sense? This is where the church is today because it's not submitting to Christ. It can't even be close to be ready to deal with some of these battles that we're facing in our world. All right, pull up my map, please. I want to show you what I'm talking about. I'm going to show you the mercy of God, and then we're going to deal with our text. May God grant you the ability to halt time in your soul so that it doesn't fight against you and make you go to sleep. Pull up up all three, and I'll tell you which one I want. These are the maps of, uh, of the journeys of Israel. As soon as it comes up, I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. I saw this a while back. It was a beautiful thing, and what this tells me is whenever God brings a trial in your life. He only brings it because he knows you're ready for that trial. Please hear that. He never brings you into a trial to make you fail miserably and to dishonor you. 
He never does that. If you fail in the trial, it's not him humiliating you. It's him educating you. I told you God will humble you, but he won't humiliate you. Akilah, if Akilah's around, she knows where it is. We got to get those maps up. I just want to show you guys something about the mercy of God, but I'll keep, I'll keep teaching until then. Point number one in our outline, the opposition of Amalek. What's so important about Amalek? Amalek goes so far back in his genealogical correlation to the children of Israel. His daddy is Esau. Now, Esau happens to be the brother of Jacob, Jacob and Esau. Y'all keeping up with me? These are the two brothers that were fighting in the womb, which the Holy Ghost taught us about. And as our elder hinted at, the younger got the better of the older and the older never forgot about it. We're going to make some application in a moment. These are the two that were in the womb of Rebecca. And she said, how could this be? And the Holy Ghost taught her, you got two nations in you. Now Esau has a son and one of the many sons he had was Amalek. The nature of Esau and Amalek is clear in the Bible. It's the worldling, it's the fleshly individual that operates as enmity over against the spiritual and him that is a part of the covenant. This is why Jacob and Esau are always at war with each other. Am I making some sense? Right. And there are other nations in regard to that. Can you expand that map so it can be seen for for some of us who have to wear full glasses? There we go. So I want to show you something here to help you understand God's goodness. I said propositionally to you a moment ago, God's not going to give you a battle that you can't handle. You get the call for cancer. God is the God of healing. So when cancer hits you and you make him a bigger God than your God, then you're afraid to call on God who could heal you in a nanosecond. Now am I making some sense? Now, if you're a child of God, God's going to make it to where he'll allow that enemy to put you in a position where you call on God. Now, when we call on God, that's the best thing we could ever do. We're exercising the greatest privilege on the planet. We're engaging in the greatest gift that God has given us in the nativity of the fullness of his gifts to us. Listen to me. God made you to call on him. He didn't make you to try to figure it out and fix it for yourself. Now, we're going to learn some things about joining him in a moment. But the one thing you and I need to learn how to be intuitively committed to as an intrinsic autonomic expression whenever we're faced with any obstacle is to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, when we hesitate to call upon him, children of God, that's an indication of some kind of foreign and strange quality and characteristic embedded in our physical and, and emotional and psychological makeup. Did that make some sense? When we hesitate to call on God, it means something's jacked up within us. When we hesitate to call on God, we can deal with it in terms of pride. We can deal with it in terms of fear. We can deal with it in terms of distraction. I can go a bunch of ways with it. I can go a bunch of ways with how you and I pathologically are disinclined to call on God initially when we get in trouble. We can use the rubric uh, uh, pride if we want to, just use pride. Pride is what keeps us from immediately saying, God, I need your help. I'll stop right there. But you know what God's going to do because he paid for you? He paid for pride in you too. And he's going to use pride to conform you to his image. 
Ask Peter. He used it mightily in Peter's life. Next thing you know, Peter calling on God all over the place. And that's what God will teach you to do. That he resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. So the child of God that's going to fight a more effectual battle against the darkness of this world is the child of God that's going to run up on the throne of grace the moment that he even gets a peep of adversaries and say, Lord, you got to show me what I need to do in this one. You got to show me how to position myself. You got to show me how to cover. You got to show me how to advance. You got to show me how to fight because sometimes it's covering and sometimes it's fighting. This time it's fighting. Y'all keeping up with me? This time is fighting. Let me show you something. So we came way up here from the area of Egypt. We came on down six, seven, eight, ten, ten journeys now. We're on our tenth journey now here, okay? We're headed for a very, very monumental event at Mount Sinai (coughs) where the people of God are going to formally get their marriage contract from God. Y'all got that? This is where Jehovah's going to say, I am the Lord, your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods besides me. And then he renders nine more commandments, which the average Christian couldn't say to save their life. Of which Jesus said, if you're going to keep God's commandments, you got to love him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And what that's going to look like is the vertical and horizontal application of those Ten Commandments. Did y'all hear what I just stated? In their practical and in their spiritual application, because love is the summation of all those laws. It's loving God and then through God, loving your neighbor. Am I making some sense? They're going to get that contract down there. They're going to get that contract down there in Mount Sinai. They're going to get that contract. But Come on back up, my friend. You need to come on back up. I'm going to end up buying another one. All right, so start down, go, go back, turn around with me and walk back and go up towards Mara. You guys see that? Scroll the map down. I want to show you something. Scroll the whole map down. We're back up at Megiddo. Keep going. All right, so we are up at Goshen. Do you see Goshen? Way up at the top. Goshen is where Israel came down. They could have came down to Migdo where they uh, they did come down to Migdo and Ethan, uh, Ethan, where they transitioned across the Red Sea. You see that transition from Egypt into the wilderness? We'll go right back up to the land of Goshen. Do you see it? Scroll down a little bit more, sister. We talked about this last. Keep scrolling. You with me? Keep stop right there. You see where it says the land of Goshen? Now make a right from your shoulder. And you see that track that says toward the land of the Philistines? Exodus chapter 12 made it very clear. Moses, we not going that way. And here's what God says. The reason that we're not taking the shortcut is because Israel is not ready for war. Did you hear that? I wish my indicator was working. Let me see if I can show you that. This is very clear. He lays it out to them. He lays it out to them. He says, I'm not going to take you that way because that way is the way of war. I'll leave that right there for the time you'll be able to find it. I'm not going to take you the short route to to the land of Palestine. Gaza is the land of Palestine. That's where you jump on in over to Hebron. You see Hebron, Beersheba, all of that? That's the promised land. He takes them the long way round 
because they are not ready for war. You guys got that? They're not ready for war. Subpoints A and B under point number one, Esau, Edom, Amalek, Agag. Does anybody remember Agag? This takes us all the way up in the first Samuel. This is a, it's something like 700 years now, 600 years after Israel's dealed out. This is going to be seen clearly over in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Look at 1 Samuel 15, 1, if you will, with me, and notice what's going on. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 and then verses 7 through 9. Samuel also said to Saul, now you remember the first king that Israel asked for? King Saul, I told you he was head and shoulders, the man that all people wanted because he looked good, but he was an empty suit. He was the people's man, but he wasn't God's man. And you and I are dealing with that often in politics. I'll leave that there. Any leader in any position ought to have the character and the qualifications for him to fit that position. He can't simply look good. He can't simply meet all of the external sort of cultural uh, uh, affirmations and biases that a society wants. Every leader ought to meet the requisites of the biblical mandates of moral and ethical and spiritual qualifications because every leader is responsible to reflect God in his leadership position. That's every leader anywhere. Did y'all hear what I just said? A man or a woman is no good for you if they are wicked by nature, if they're unrighteous by nature, if they're criminal by nature, if they're narcissistic by nature. Am I describing some of our presidents? Wicked, criminal, narcissistic. Because they will use their power for their own glory and subordinate you as God said would happen with Israel when they asked for a king. And that's exactly what Saul did. God says in the book of Hosea, he raised up Saul in his wrath, not in his mercy. And he took him out in his anger, not in his kindness. God's man was David, a man after God's own heart. Not perfect by any stretch, but David didn't do what Saul did to the people of God. Saul brought all kind of reproach on the people of God, and Saul did to the people of God what Samuel said kings will do, turn you into slaves. That's what you are today. See, kings of righteousness are designed to liberate you so you can be the best that, is, that God has called you to be. Monarchies and, 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 and totalitarian systems turn you into slaves. The true and the living God came to liberate you, but you're not totally liberated. You are his servant. Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you to be king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, hearken unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Verse two and three. Thus said the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel. That's our account. You notice God does not forget when his enemies come after his people. How that he laid wait for him in the what? When he came up from Egypt. You can make a correlation between our, our, what our, our native text, our, our founding text, and this, and understand that Amalek was laying wait for them. That wasn't kind of an arbitrary response. That was laying wait. Your enemy lays wait. He lays wait because he sees you advancing towards God's will. And his goal is to stop you. Amalek laid wait. I'm going to show you the image in a moment. He was up on the hill. He could see them coming. 
And God means for the world to see his people coming. You're going to see that as we close out our message. Give me some time. And the text says, now go and smite Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. But slay both men and women, infant and suckling, ox, sheep, camel, ass. Do you see it? Now notice what God said. Exercise what is called the the law of the curse, the, the law of prohibition from taking spoils, taking goods. Don't let anything live in this nation. This here is a total genocide. Y'all got that? Only person that can do that righteously is God. Y'all can argue with him all you want. See, God knows what a people group will be if you let them flourish and grow. Do you understand that? He knows what a people group will be. He says, now, you, 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 you can't spare them. If you spare them, it's going to be a problem. Guess what King Saul did? Spared him. And that thing remained a problem all the way to King, to Queen Esther. When her uncle had to deal with that fool Haman, who was a grandson of King Agag, who was the grandson of Amalek. Am I making some sense? I'm going to make some application in a minute. But there are things in your life and mine that we got to make sure we deal with, because if that root stays there, it's going to grow up again. And this is true in our country. This is true in our country. This is why you got so much controversial going on in some of my African brothers' countries for dealing with policies in a different way than we're dealing with them in America. That's another conversation. They said, we're looking over at America and we see America tolerating too many things. No, we're not going to go that way. Now the whole of the United Nations want to circle around my African brothers and sisters and call them crazy and out of step, and they're going to force them to get in line. There's a deep theological implication there that I can't talk about right now because it requires the preparation of your heart and mind in a way that makes sure that you don't lapse into legalism and self-righteousness. This is why we're not talking about it right now. Because too many people have a shallow approach to this whole matter. And it's designed by the enemy of the media that I'm going to talk about in a minute to keep us fighting. Did y'all hear what I just stated? But I'm going to tell you, there is a deep, deep philosophical grounds upon which Uganda and several of the other states are dealing with this differently than America. And it's not a simple model conceptual answer. Christians got to start thinking deeper. Or otherwise, all you're going to do is argue and fall right into the trap. We call this the pump cart trap, trap of politics. You're arguing left and right and still going into the cave of slavery. That's the goal of the enemy to keep you arguing instead of helping you rise above it all and get a bird's eye view of the puppet masters controlling the whole thing. Now, your Bible allows you to have a bird's eye view. But you got to take your Bible seriously because everything in my world since I was a child has tried to tell me the Bible is not relevant. It's not valid. It's not accurate. It's not spiritual. It's not powerful. It won't work. You need another mythos. And I have discovered that they are a lie from absolute hell. 
I've been made to go down into the cave. I've been made to go down into the rabbit hole of history and deal with so many philosophies that have entrenched themselves and embedded themselves in our culture, in the nomenclature of our political systems. And I realize they've been lying all along about the true and the living God. And people are believing it. Go and smite them utterly. Now notice what it says over in uh, verse um, 13. Notice what he says over in verse 13 as he's dealing with this. Um, start, sorry, start at verse 7 through 9. I want to start at 7 and go through 9. Notice what is said between Samuel and, and uh, Saul. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah unto thou comest to Shur that is over against Egypt. Well done. Verse 8. And he took Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Do you see it? He kept the head of the snake and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag, watch this, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatling and of the lambs and all that was good in their sight. Obviously, because God said nothing was good. You see how we're leaning on our own understanding? And now what we're doing is vetoing God to have it our way. I'm telling you, it's contemporary to where we are today. It's contemporary. So listen to what he says. And would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuge that they was. See, God was teaching them a lesson too. I'm going to be here way too long. He was teaching them a lesson too. You don't get to prejudice your own biases over God's assessment of what needs to be dealt with, when, how, and why, and the scope of it. You just don't get to get emotional about it. You don't get to actually veto your opinion and now reconstruct what is a value system to you over against God's value system. Am I making some sense? You just don't get to do it. You may not like it, but you still have to submit to the crown rights of God when he says do a thing a certain way with a certain scope because the outcome will be better for you and for your children. See, look, the reason for which God was telling King Saul to do it is because he didn't want the children of Israel three generations from now to have to deal with it, which is what my country is dealing with right now. We have imposed upon my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren and my great-grandchildren hell. They are already in the policies, embedded in the policies. Our grandchildren have to deal with the unraveling of our country because it has bought into globalism. I'm sorry, mom and daddy, you must know that you may go on and die and go on to glory, but your kids are going to have to put up with a world that is so messed up because of the policies that we allow to advance in Washington. Just like I said, I'm sure if my grandparents could see where we are today, they would have done a better job. I'm sure they would have done a better job to shore up us in the way of wisdom and maturity so that we can navigate our responsibility and our generation better than they did. And it's on us right now. I'm just telling you right now, ladies and gentlemen, when I look around at my community, we're so messed up. It's not even funny. I'm I'm very sad for my community. We're not ready to fight this battle. But this is a battle you cannot avoid. 
Now, I need to go back to our text. Needless to say, my brother Samuel, who is the last of the Old Testament prophets, first of the priests, old man Samuel said, bring Agag here. He grabbed Agag by the back of his neck. Give me an axe. Let me show you, Israel, how to put an end to sin. If you don't put an end to sin, it'll rise up and take authority over you again. That's the application spiritually. We're not talking about killing people or fighting people. We're not into that as Christians. But what we must kill is sin. It must die if we're going to live. Mortify the deeds of the flesh so that you may live. Did that application make some sense? It's so very important then. Going back to our first point so we can look at our second sub point. The struggle of Jacob and Esau. Y'all got that? The struggle of Jacob and Esau. Why am I speaking about this? Because when God called Israel out of Egypt, he gave them little hints of who they were. Um, Because God is the one that gives us our identity markers. Again, we'll talk about that next week. You don't get to just say who you are and what you is. You don't get to say, I'm is this. I'm is that. And on any other day, I'm is something else. No, you is what God made you is. All the other arbitrary choices you and I are making are facsimiles of our own ignorance, naivete, are again fantasies that we erect because we want to pretend that we're gods. Did that make some sense? Right. So like if you can define who you are, then you're God. If you can say, I made myself. How'd you get here, sir? I just came into existence. I spoke myself into existence. I said, me, let it be. And here I am. I'm God. I can shapeshift myself into any form, any entity, anything I want to be. I am God. This is what we're playing with. I'm giving it to you in a very facetious and humorous way. This is what you're dealing with. The insanity of playing God. That's what you're dealing with. This is what you're dealing with. The struggle of Jacob and Esau. Listen to what God says in Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Here's what he says, Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Setting you up for something. Got a little time. Setting you up for something. Listen to what he says. And you shall say to Pharaoh, this is God talking to Moses to talk to Pharaoh. Now watch how God describes Israel. Listen to it. And you shall say to Pharaoh, thus saith Yahweh, Israel is my son. Did you get that? My firstborn. Did you get that? Right. So let me just teach you right quick and keep going for time's sake. God viewed that 1.3 million people as his son, his prodigy, because he actually has a prototype of the prodigy in who? Jesus. And Israel is a model of Jesus and God means business for his son to be liberated. In fact, it's the pattern of his son coming out of Egypt that Jesus fulfilled in Matthew 2 when he went down to Egypt running from Herod until Herod died. And then God called Jesus, Mary and Joseph out of Egypt back to his purpose. Did he not? And every one of us, if we're a child of God, guess what? We are sons and daughters of God and we are part of the firstborn. Do you know that? You and I are the first fruits of everything that God is doing in his new creation paradigm. I'm a son of God. Are you? 
That's exactly. I am part of him who is the firstborn. He is called the firstborn of many brethren. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when you get your identity right, now you can get your role right. You cannot get your roles right if you don't get your identity right. This is why marriages are collapsing everywhere. And the ones that are coming won't ever make it. Can you imagine, I shouldn't say this, but I'll just toss it out because I got you. Can you imagine as a human being, if you are ship shifting into all kinds of genders, whenever you want to, and you marry another, another ship shaper, ship shaper. Y'all got two ship shaping people. And y'all come together in holy matrimony. You can't use the term him and her, he and she, because y'all didn't ship shifted y'all way into a covenant that requires the expansion of every mode of pronouns that they're buying into today. In the sight of God, I now pronounce you 175 pronouns married to 175 program, pronouns. Did that come home? Child of God, did he come home? Let me help you understand how the ungodly and the irrational and the illogical likes to use God whenever they want to. Have y'all figured that out yet? I'm teaching some of you uh, the fallacy of wrong logic or what we call the equivocating principle of logic. Whenever you want a truth to work in your behalf, then you own it. And then five minutes after that truth has worked in your behalf, you abandon it again. So you'll get folks coming up to the altar calling themselves him and her in order to make it functionally to people getting married. But the him and her are not committed to the ontological reality of the him and her. So as soon as the paperwork is signed, they go back to spreading out the pronouns. Now, if you're talking about jacking up your kids, that's how you jack your kids up. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? This is where we are today. So when God says, Israel is my firstborn, may I tell you, it means that God is already telling Israel, you don't get to determine your identity. I am the one that determines who you are and therefore your roles. See, Jehovah is the husband of Israel as the bride. That firstborn paradigm means that Israel had the privilege of being the nation to show the whole world what it means to have a right relationship with God. But it's a fight. Is it a fight? It's a fight. I think y'all got that. It's a fight that we're dealing with, ladies and gentlemen. It's a real fight that we're dealing with. So that's why I wanted to set that forth. There are many passages that can underscore this. The conflict between Jacob and Esau is the conflict here now uh, iterated in our text. It's a conflict between the flesh and the what? And the spirit. It's a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Your Bible tells you the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit because the two can never operate in agreement. One has to be subordinated under the other. Did that make some sense? If you are going to be able to operate in the paradoxical nature of your human nature, and your divine nature are your supernatural nature, your supernatural nature has to bring and subsume your natural nature underneath itself. Did that make some sense? Because if the other one rules, then now you're making God a liar. And at that point, you know what God has to do. I've already told you, if you and I want to walk in the flesh, he's going to take you on out. 
If you want to walk in the spirit, then he can give you the capacity to mature and walk in the dominion that he's calling you to. But you got to be ready for a fight. That's what our text is teaching. Let's go to where got more to talk about. Thank you for listening. The most formidable conflict zone in our life will always be our flesh. The most formidable conflict in all of our life will always be our flesh. I can talk about all kind of enemies and the church will shout and scream and holler amen until I say you got to deal with your fallen nature. Then all of a sudden people want to have an argument with you. But I'm here to tell you the devil is concerned with but one thing that your fallen nature continues to have freedom to run because it will naturally rebel against God. It will raise up before you all kinds of lovers to help you rebel against the true and the living God until God has to call your number and check you out of this world. Let me keep going. Point number three in our outline. A lot more to say. The understanding of Moses. I love this. The understanding of Moses. Look at verse verse eight in our text. This is such a beautiful thing. Some things to learn. So what we discovered in verse eight is that Amalek lay in wait. And he's the one that picked this fight, didn't he? And Moses said unto Joshua, choose out men. Joshua, choose out men and go and fight with Amalek. Do you see it? Tomorrow I will stand upon the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Point number two, the understanding of Moses. The opposition of Amalek is going to be now challenged by the understanding of Moses. You got two leaders at battle here, do we not? Do not forget the vertical lens, but let's operate at the horizontal level right now. Is Moses learning something about his walk with God now? Is Moses learning? See, we're all got to be learning. Leaders and students, pastors, elders, and parishioners, we all got to be learning. And you should be able to pick up when your leaders are learning. That, that development must go on until we breathe our last breath. You must not come into our church and hear exactly the same thing you heard 20 years ago. You must not. You must not. It must mature. It must develop. It must be able to map on to the 21st century reality. It may be the same war, but it's going to be different gods. Am I making some sense? Right. There must be growth in grace. There must be an expansion of your comprehension. There must be a deeper capacity to analyze the wiles of the devil and address them at the contemporary time. Because the battles that our forefathers just 50 years ago was fighting was nothing like we're dealing with today. 50 years ago, they did not deal with what I taught you was God gave the dragon a big mouth. Revelation chapter 13, remember? And a mouth was given unto the dragon. 50 years ago, they would have never even understood that mouth. We know that mouth today. It is your gargantuan system of social media that's so intrusive in our lives that it is transformational at the sociological level. Did you hear what I just stated? So many of us know the enemy that we're dealing with. And I'll talk to you about it in a minute. It's called propaganda. We know what we're dealing with. You can't have a society changing in the way in which our society is changing today without an effective propaganda campaign.
campaign. You can't be looking at what's going on and stupidly say, oh, no, how we acting so crazy. Somebody been talking relentless, ubiquitously, unending until there was a change. Moses understood that God called Israel out to worship the true and the living God. Did you know that? He said it. He said it very plainly. Tell, Mo, tell Pharaoh to bring my people out that they might worship me. Did you know that? Tell Pharaoh to bring my people out. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, and then Exodus 7, 4. Look at Exodus 5, 1. Notice what God said to Moses. He says, after Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus said the Lord God of Israel, let my people what? That's called liberation. But it's not liberation to anything, it's liberation to worship. Here it is, in order that they may what? Hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Feasting is what we do every time we come together. So you and I are all called to worship God. We're called to worship God as God's sons. We just learned that. Now look at what it says over in chapter 7, verse 4. Listen to what it says. But Pharaoh will not listen to you. Do you see that? That I may lay my hands on Pharaoh. I love that. Lay my hands on. Pharaoh getting ready to have his, have his head laid on by the hands of God. God lays his hands on everybody that acts a fool. And bring forth my what? Say it again. Brings forth my what? So God views us as his sons, but he also views us as his. Even before they left, God had already constructed in his own plan that they would be an army. And he, guess who he told first? He didn't even tell Israel that. He told Pharaoh. Pharaoh, let my army go. Y'all got that? Let my army go and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to do it by great judgments. But Pharaoh's not going to let you go, but I'm going to see to it that you go. And when you go, you're going to go an army. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Let me show you the picture. Can you pull up that image I shared with you to pull up? I want you to see what the enemy sees of Israel as they're traveling through the wilderness. And spiritually, this is what they should see with us. But that's a whole nother conversation. I'm talking about the church. Do you see the picture? If you look carefully at the picture, you can see all 12 tribes encompassing Jehovah in his tabernacle. Can you see it? Can you see in the center of the people of God is what? Worship. The people of God are identified by worship. And if you and I were going deeper into the metaphor, into the analogy, into the optic, you would see the Shekinah glory there. And you would see the cloudy pillar there. And it would be an emblem of God's presence. That means God is in the midst of his people. And when they travel, they traveled in that formation. Told you, formation leads to information, which leads to what? Lord, help my people to get it. And this is supposed to be a public witness. Like God's people should not be afraid of what the world thinks because you worship every Sunday. See, the enemy just came in about two and a half years ago and told you you can't do it. And a whole bunch of Christians were Egyptians on that day. I'm sorry, they were. A whole bunch of Christians were Egyptians. I could go deep into it. I told you I'm in the rabbit hole. I see the enemy. I see the enemy. I see that we don't know our identity. And I see the same thing happening then. It's happening now. God teaches us. Is he teaching us? See, listen, and guess, look at all these people on the hillside. Do you see all these people? 
<laughs> Did you see all these nations? Uh-oh. Here they go. They right up on us now. Because God meant for them to see God leading his people through the wilderness. They need to be scared. They need to be fearful. They need to worry about how they're going to negotiate this encroaching army, don't they? Now, if they're smart, all Israel wants to do is pass through. But now if you act a fool, we got to go to war. See what I'm getting at? All they wanted to do was pass through. Man, we just, man, we trying to go home. Man, we don't want to argue with you. And here you are clowning. We trying to go home. And really, this is the paradoxical truth of the people of God. I'm going to give you the last part first and keep going. We're not here for war. We're here for peace. We are not here for war. We're here for peace. Am I making some sense, children of God? The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. For us, the war is spiritual. We're not, we're not seeking to harm one human being physically, emotionally, psychologically. Our job is to help you understand that you have an enemy that you need to reckon with, and the only one that can handle him formidably is the true and the living God. We're not here to fight you. And every time the church gets trapped in fights at the political military level, it has become an antichrist system itself. That's another conversation. But you do have to learn how to fight. I've already told you it's a good fight of faith, laying hold of eternal life. Look at that. They ought to be scared. That's the people, the ragtag team of sinners that Angelo talked about. The ragtag team, a crazy, hard-headed, rebellious, complaining sinners that God brought out of Egypt. These are the folks we've been talking about for the last three, four weeks, complaining about bread and complaining about water and how hot it is and how they want to go back and hang out by the flesh pots of Egypt. They're being transformed into soldiers. Because, remember, deliverance leads to development. That leads to deployment. We are in the developmental stages of our transformation. Y'all keeping up? All right, let's keep going. Point number two. I love this. Moses understood warfare. Look at, um, look at um, chapter uh, 12, verse 17. Chapter 12, verse 17. This is Exodus 12, 17. Notice what it says. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for in the selfsame day that I brought out your what? Armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. This is where the children of Israel are locked in paradigmatically to the Passover. They have their essence right here. This is the essence of their identity Pasha, Passover, okay, the Paschal Feast. And it points to the one who is what? The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Israel, excuse me, Israel was brought into existence for this very purpose to be the conduit for the coming of Jesus. God brought it about, even with all of the crazy conduct of Israel, didn't he? And God will finish his same plan even with us. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Come hail a high water. Let me see. Give me verse 51. If it's a verse 51 in Exodus 12, I think it is. It's a long journey. Here it is. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their See, God had already seen them as an army before they saw themselves as an army. Be strong in the Lord 
and in the power of his might, that you might stand against the wiles of the devil. And having, having done all to stand, right? Having your loins girded with truth, right? Having on the breastplate of righteousness, Put on that helmet of salvation. Take up that shield of faith. Have your feet shodden with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Draw out the sword of the spirit so that you can go to war when it's time to stand for your own soul in the glory of God. You're a warrior too. You are a you're soldier too. You just don't know where your panoply is. You walk around in your drawers. Most Christians walking around in their drawers. Am I telling the truth? Somebody, raise your hand if I'm telling the truth. Most Christians walking around in their drawers. I can tell you some stories. The Roman soldier, when he was not deployed for a particular campaign, when he was taking a break, even if he found himself at the tavern, you know, it gets tough. He never took off his gear. His main vital protective gear, he never took off, kept his sword with him. His shield wasn't far by, his helmet wasn't far by, but even when he was trying to rest, he knew that the enemy was always creeping up on him. My brothers and sisters are walking around in their drawers. Not good. They think that we are not in a warfare. You're walking around in your drawers. Point number two, the understanding of Moses. I love this. He understood that warfare is part of what? Worship. So point B, worship does what? It exalts God. Let me, let, me, let me see if I can help you. Notice what Moses said in verse eight again. Here's what he said. Uh, verse, uh, let me see. Verse eight. He said, verse nine, I'm sorry. Moses said unto Joshua, choose you out, men. Go out and fight with Amalek tomorrow and I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. All right, let me expedite through this. When God called Moses, he called Moses and he says, you got to go into combat for me as my mediator against Pharaoh. And Moses was complaining because he wasn't gifted intrinsically and no man should take this battle unto themselves. This is how you know you're not ready when you think you are. And so what God told Moses to do is say, see that rod you got? See that rod you got for shepherding the people? See that rod, Moses? That rod is going to represent my power because you are going to be my under shepherd. I am the shepherd of those sheep that are in the pinhole of Egyptian tyranny. Did y'all get that? This rod is going to speak for me. So him and Aaron go in and they have a battle with the magicians and the rod swallows up their snakes in order to indicate the power of God over the power of the enemy. Then as they head out, God just starts to destroy all the gods of Egypt, starting with the Nile River. Big old God, turn that into blood. He uses the rod. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? He smites all of the gods of Egypt and then finally kills the greatest emblem of their gods, which was their firstborn. That's when Pharaoh said, man, y'all hurry up and get out of here. See what I'm getting at? Freedom requires the destruction of gods. And that's even true in your life. Freedom requires the destruction of gods. And the rod that's going to put it into those idols that you and I allow to run our life is the rod of God's son. See, Moses is not lifting himself up. He's lifting Christ up. If I be lifted up, 
I will draw all men unto myself. I will liberate them. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. Once I'm lifted up, I'll bring my people to myself. And God's rod is God's son. Do you believe that? All power and all authority and all dominion has been given unto me. This is Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. A rod out of Jesse is coming to handle his business. Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 53, 1. Whom shall the arm of the Lord be revealed unto? Who will believe his report? I ask you today, do you believe Jesus is the power of God under salvation? I ask you that. Now we plan church. We plan church. Soon as one of them emails come to you, you go bow down to Pharaoh again. We plan church. Are we not? Soon as that, soon as the decree come down, we're going to tremble in our boots. Tremble in our boots. There it is. Look at that. Moses knows what he's doing. He says, I'm going to go stand upon the rock. I'm going to teach you a few more things. Y'all got time? Teach you a few more things. So God help my people to get this. We're under point number three, the understanding of Moses. He understands that that God is to be worshiped because in the exaltation of God, God shows up. Guess what? Moses is standing on the top of a hill. The battle is down in the plains. Guess what? Everybody sees the rod. The people of God see the rod. The enemy sees the rod. Y'all got that? The enemy will have to reckon with that crazy man that's standing on the top of the hill with the rod up in the air. Because you know what? Oh, I I got to give this to you. How long can the rod stay lifted up? is what the enemy is asking. Because if the enemy can outweigh you until the rod descends, he can win the battle over you. This is a battle of perseverance. This is a battle of endurance. This is a battle of sustaining your position and you need God's grace to help you stand. His whole job has been to just wait, 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 wait. They'll get tired. They'll let their guard down. We can get in then. Oh, I could just spread this out on so many applications. I'm a married man. I've been fighting this hellish war for 42, 43 years in a couple weeks, me and Miss Barbara. I've been fighting this war for being a godly man, for being a father, for being a husband. Fighting this crazy war. Fighting this crazy war. Do you understand what I'm saying? Fighting this absolutely insane war. Enemies coming everywhere to get in my home. Get in my kid's head. Get in my children's life. And it takes a piece of your flesh. I guarantee you that. You don't get to get get away with this unscathed. If you dare to be a man, you are waging war against this world. If you dare to be a real woman, you are waging war against this world. I promise you that. I promise you that. And all they need you to do is get tired. Here's the next truth that comes home. I love this. God has promised to fight our battles. Isn't that what he says? This is Exodus 14, 14. Give me 10, 15 more minutes of your time. I need you to get this. But I'm going to show you how it works. Here's what God said in, <laughs> I love this part. Look at this one. This is verse 14. Notice what it says. The Lord shall do what? And you shall do what? Oh, these are paradoxical truths. I taught this in our Friday night study. 
And, I, and I'm going to help you understand what that means. That doesn't mean you go around going, see no evil, do no evil, hear no evil. You're not monkeys. Christians don't think well. Biblical truth operates in the complexity of both ands and either ors, depending on when necessary. Did that make some sense? These are, these are logical principles of how to delineate when you are going to do this or that, or when you're going to do both. These are logical principles. Sometimes things are to be understood in the ambiguity of both. Did that make some sense? Sometimes you're going to operate in the both and principle. You're going to learn that here in a moment. Sometimes it's God fighting for us, and then sometimes it's us fighting with God. That's what's getting ready to happen here now. Think about it. Up to now, Israel did not have to fight. Are you getting some revelation, bro? Because, see, God will train you before he gives you your first bout. And you get to enjoy God saying, I will fight your enemies for you. And that's what God did when he led Israel out. They got up to the Red Sea. They looked around and here come Pharaoh's army. Oh, oh. remember all that? <laughs> look at verse 15. Look at verse, look at verse 13. Go back to verse 13. Here it is. Here it is. I love this. And Moses said unto the people, do not fear, stand still and do what? See the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today for the Egyptians whom you have seen this day, you shall never see again. What a word of promise. What a word of promise. But look at verse 13, look at verse 12. I love this. This is Moses. God's training Moses. Here we go. Uh, let me see, let me see, let me see, let me see. Verse 11, I, I, I need to go to the text and find it. I should go. Uh, no, yeah, this is them complaining. And they said unto Moses, because there's no graves in Egypt, you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. There you go again. Wherefore you have dealt with us to carry us forth out of Egypt. Verse 12. I want to walk on down to it because I found it. I want you to see it. Is not this the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone? Remember what I told you? God's calling you out. You don't want to come out. Leave us alone. We good in Egypt. We're good in Egypt. We're good in Egypt. For it has been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. They haven't even made it through the Red Sea yet. Told you they were Egyptians. Didn't I tell you they were Egyptians? We're Egyptians in many ways. Next verse. We've already seen this verse. So what the text tells us, and Moses said unto the people, do not fear, the Lord is going to come through for you. I love this. He gives him a promise. Now look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, the Lord shall fight for you and shall hold your peace. Verse 15. Verse 15. And the Lord said unto Moses, why are you crying unto me, boy? Tell these children of Israel that they should what? Arise, move, and go. Keep it moving. Keep it moving. I know you see what's behind you, but you are forward-oriented people. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Yeah, Lord, but I see a big old sea in front of us here. What are we going to do with that? You're going to walk through it. You're going to walk through the sea. After you stand still and behold that I can make a way out of no way. Y'all see what I'm saying? All right, let's keep going. Because Moses got that lesson. He got that lesson. He said, because remember what God said, Moses raised up the what? Man, this rod is bad. <laughs> Woo! I mean, on that, he was like, Woo! Man, look at this, man. Y'all see that ocean? Do you, woo! Do y'all see that? 
man, that rod is bad. God made them to walk through on dry shine. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. The rod is bad. Is the rod bad? Woo! Moses said, all right, I see we're going to war. And I learned my lesson back in chapter 14. Hey, fellas, I'm going to the top of the hill. I'm not fighting this. God didn't tell me to fight. Joshua, I need you to gather together some fellows. I don't even know what y'all going to do. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to the top of the hill and remind everybody that the Lord is the one that brought us out and he's going to be the one that brings us in. Did that make some sense? All right, then. Point number three, the obedience of his brothers. This was so insightful. Lord, help me get through with this. This is so important. The obedience of his brothers. I want you to see this. There's a lesson here. So Joshua did as Moses had said unto him. Do you see that? So Joshua did as Moses had said to them, said to him. Do you see that? So Joshua did as Moses had said to him. I want you to get that. The commandment came down from God to Moses and from Moses to Joshua. And you got a man who is not complaining about his assignment. I want you to get that because Joshua is being given a preview here. God is showing us the next in command. He's showing us the next in command. Does anybody see it with me? God is always showing us the next in command by that Christocentric expression and manifestation of submission to the upline. Did you get it? Not jumping out ahead, not going before, staying right under. I love me some Joshua. I want you to see what happens. Here's what it says. So Joshua did what Moses said, said and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Ur went up to the top of the hill. You see that? This is Moses, Aaron, and Ur. This is Moses, Aaron, and his son. Ur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Whoa! Do you see it? Now, this is narrative theology. God is teaching you something. God's in the midst of all this, but he's working with leadership. And he's working with leadership in the area of acute manifestations of their weaknesses and strengths. God will always work with your weakness in order to remind you that he is your strength. You have to know this. You can't operate out of the gifts and callings that God gives you with an arrogance that somehow you are in control of the gifts. I see it all the time. I see it frequently in the church. I see it frequently and particularly in leadership. I see leadership pretending to submit to God. They don't. They'll get approval to preach, approval to pastor, approval to lead. And they will systematically and gradually remove God's word from the central object of devotion and worship. And the next thing you know, the people are looking to the leader and not to Christ. And most of our churches hold a very low view of scripture because the pastors don't know how to handle the word of God adequately enough to exalt Christ in your eyes. Am I making some sense to y'all? That's exactly right. So you got a lot of Christians who love to play church. 
and engage in the music and the swaying back and forth. But there's no power in it at the social level. There's no power in it when you leave the doors and you are completely fit to be tied when the government hog ties you and drags you into their kingdom. It's true. Sorry. I'm sorry. It's true. I'm so sorry. It's true. Because the churches should be lifting up their rod right now in everything that's going on in our nation. I'm so sorry it's true. I'm so sorry. But our text is teaching us how God is organizing his people. I'm going to show you three or four more things. I'm done. The obedience of his brethren. I love this. Subpoint A speaks to what we call mutual what? Edification of the body. I want you to see this. I've been talking to us about this in the book of Jude, if you've been keeping up. Edification is never a process that is exclusively to you alone by yourself. When you talk about the term edification, archidomos, archidomos, the idea of edification is a building up process. And no one builds themselves up. You always have to use existential tools or resources for building. As a rule, the way you and I are best built up, I don't care if it's at the academic level, I don't care if it's at the physical level, I don't care if it's at the psycho-sociological level, other people have to be involved in the process of building you up. Did you hear what I just stated? It is a multi-relational principle for true edification. You know how some of y'all say, you know what, man, 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 I got to lose some weight. I got to lose some weight. I got to lose some weight. I promise I'm going to start tomorrow. Man, I'm going to lose some weight. Then you go a half an hour. I think I'll start tomorrow. I got to lose some weight. Man, I got to lose some weight. And then you get home and you I think I'll start the next day. Do you know what's going on? You have asserted an attempt to build yourself up when what you need is help. You need somebody that has gone a little further along than you to help motivate you and guide you in the process of mortification. Because when we're talking about being built up, you've got to first go through a breaking down. You've got to go through a breaking down. And we don't like to break down. We like being right where we is. We just want to go to sleep and wake up built up. But the problem is you can't go to sleep and wake up built up. You need a mutual corresponding team to help you get to where you want to go, even if you can capture the vision of what you want to be, which is what children of God should be doing. That's why he gave you the Holy Ghost. You can't help yourself. And that's why he gave you the body of Christ. And that's why he gave you brothers and sisters. And that's when a, when a man and a woman are talking about being married, they're entering into a mutual edification process which can't even be done by those two. They need a larger group. This is why we're getting ready to do the class. This is where uh, 1 Corinthians is becoming our study now because the Corinthian church thought they were self-sufficient to be able to operate in their own gifts. And God says, no, no edification can occur without a multilateral interaction, an intramural multilateral process by which the body is helping build up each member and a collaborative. Do you see what these boys are doing? Moses on the hill, Aaron's on the hill, Ur's on the hill, Joshua's down there gathering the troops together. It sounds like they are working as a team. Isn't that good? Stay with me. 
They're working as a team because they have now no reason to argue like they were doing just yesterday. Let me hurry up and get this point done. Right, when men and women are not recognizing that God is among them, they will complain because you're walking in darkness. When men and women do not understand that God has promised to provide for you bread and water, they will complain because they're walking in unbelief. When men and women do not recognize that God is among them, will provide their bread and water, meaning he will engage in, in processes by which you won't starve to death. He won't let you go without. He'll make a way in order for you to know God is real. He does that in order for you to trust him. And when you got water flowing, like they got water flowing now. Do they have water flowing? It's coming out of the rock right now. Do you see it? They're drinking plenty of water. Their cows are drinking water. They got the pheasant coming from the east wind. They got the biscuits coming in the morning. They got biscuits and pheasant and they got water flowing. Is God among them or what? My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We love to talk it. We love to talk it. We love to talk it. Don't we love to talk it? My God will meet my needs until you get that threat. I'm going to show you something. These people knew now that God was among them. They saw all of the resources, the Shekinah glory, the fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, the river flowing, the river flowing, the water of life, the bread coming in the morning, every morning without fail, the quail coming in the evening. God is among us. Now we got a battle to fight. What do we do? We come together and fight the battle. That's what we do. Since we have a God that meets all of our needs and since he has fought this battle for us already before against the greater army, Pharaoh, the Am Amalekites are just a little weak army. I just want you to capture that now. This is one of the little, little training tests. OK, Amalek is a training. test. He's a little, little weakling. I just want you to know. But Israel got to go through it. So let's walk this on out so I can close out my final point. And let you go home. Notice what it says. But Moses' hands were heavy and they took a stone and put it under him. Is that good or what? See, this is what we mean by collaboration. This is what we mean by creativity, spiritual creativity. They now know that the God is in the heavens. He's also the God of the earth. They then also figured out that God is up to using stones. Woo, there's a stone. Let's go grab the stone and place it under the arm of our brother. That stone represents who? Jesus, the Christ. He's able to uphold us. He's able to uphold us by his mighty hand. Put those stones in there so that brother can rest. What that also means is that the brethren that's helping you need Jesus too. This here is the doctrine of mediation. This is how you keep Christ in the midst of it so that it doesn't go carnal. So no flesh can get glory in God's sight. Because we, we tear it up in the church with all that. Man-centered ideology, man-centered theology, where Christ is absent. Christ is in all this. Is he in it? He's the rod. 
He's the stone that's holding up the servant. While Joshua, whose name in the Hebrew is Jehovah shall save, is our Lord Jesus fighting the battle with us against the Amalekites. You see it, don't you? You see, God's all in this. Is God all in it? I got a few minutes and we're done. Please get it then. This is the defining moment for Joshua. I love this. That's your sub point B and point number three. The defining moment for Joshua's leadership. Notice what the text says in verse 13. And Joshua discomfited Amalek. Do you see it? And his people with the edge of the sword. See, that boy's bad. You know what I love about Joshua, as I stated earlier? He never, ever complained. You got all of these foolish Egyptian Israelites from the beginning of their journey to the end of their journey, challenging Moses. Is that true? Do y'all know what I'm talking Do you know the history? Even this crazy sister and brother, they're as fickle as anybody could be. They're all challenging him. Leadership's going to challenge him. Family's going to challenge him. His wife is challenging him. It's tough on Moses. Did y'all hear what I just stated? There's one brother who was always there to do whatever Moses said do. Whether Moses went up to the top of the mountain or whether Moses went down into the valley, there was a man who understood what it meant to be a servant. And his name was Joshua. Whatever God called Joshua to do, Joshua did. Joshua was there when his, when his earthly master failed. We'll get there down the line. And God says, all right, it's time for Joshua. Did y'all hear what I just stated? It's time for Joshua. One of the things I'm trying to tell my young men around here is about the principle of second in command. Because the devil wants you to be first in command. Because See, like he can't put up with being second in command. He hates Jesus. The devil hates Jesus. Do you understand? He hates Jesus particularly. And he hates Jesus because Jesus is the Love of the Father. The devil hates Jesus. He hates Jesus' name to be declared. He'll let you play church in the White House, in the honky-tonk joint, in the club, in entertainment centers. He'll let you play church everywhere. He's not going to do with you exalting Jesus. Did you understand what I'm saying? You got to tear Jesus down for him. He'll allow you to tear him down. Ask all the hip hoppers. They tear Jesus straight down in the midst of their wickedness. They said, now the Jesus of the church folk, he's impotent. He's weak. We can do whatever the hell we want to do. And that Jesus, he ain't nothing but a little, a little token like the things we wear around our neck. Did y'all hear what I just stated? That Jesus is powerless. That Jesus is powerless and people are deceived by that powerless Jesus because they think that that's the Jesus that lets you live like whatever you want to live and you're still going to heaven. Did you hear what I just said? This world will not tolerate a Jesus of whom the Bible says is sovereign Lord over everyone. Over everyone. When you go to making Jesus who he really is, you get canceled. You get canceled. Oh, wait a minute. That boy just getting too serious about Jesus. And he got too many people watching him. 
And he's standing up saying, we need Jesus. Oh, no, you got to get rid of him. We'll let you play church, but don't take the son of God seriously. Try it in your boardrooms. Try it in your conference rooms. Are you hearing me? Jesus is first in command now, and that's because God has highly exalted him. And that's after he worked, uh, he walked 37 years as second in command. He came down here and loved on us. And he never did his own will. He always did the will of him that sent him. That's called a perfect servant. That's what he's calling you and me to. You and I didn't buy anything. We didn't purchase anything. We don't own anything. How arrogant for us to even assume we did. We don't own the next breath coming in and out of our mouth. And we're going around acting like we can control folks. And control, that's what, that's what our secular system is trying to do. We are all the offspring of God, says, says Paul in Acts 17. We all got an answer to God, don't we? And here we're going around trying to control people like we're God. The Lord Jesus never controlled anybody. He simply obeyed his father's will and God put everything under his feet because he loved the idea of sonship. This is why you can't get much done in the church. Because everybody wants to be a chief. Don't nobody want to serve. It's really true. Just want to come get spoon fed and go. Rarely can you hear from a Christian, what can I do, pastor? We just want to do whatever you, y'all out there working for Caesar, working for Pharaoh. God has a church. He has work in the church. I know it hurts. We got to lift the mirror up. Got to lift that mirror up. This is why your battles are not won at your home. You're not even ready to serve God. What you're going to learn next week when we do with marriage, the only way our marriages will work is if we start at the top. We can't start with us. Today, just the two of us won't work, even if you try. Sorry, because it's God's institution. So people, are, we have been transformed into consumer-oriented, me, myself, and I creatures and don't realize God's fighting a battle. And the enemy is real. That's the other thing I say. I'm going to let y'all go in a second. You know what I say? Christians do not believe this battle is real. They don't believe this battle is real. Until they come lock your tail up. You won't believe this battle is real until you wake up one day and you have no control over your income. You won't believe this battle is real until they tell you, unless you comply. Somebody call where we are today an illusion of freedom. And when people are not ready to fight for freedom, they're willing to yield to illusions. What God is teaching Israel is, yeah, I'm going to get you there. But every now and then, you got to fight. Now, our third point is clear, the overcoming power of Christ. Do you believe that Christ is the power of God? Yes. Notice what the text says in verse 14. 
The text very, says, very clearly says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in all of your books and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. Do you know what that means? The banner of our sovereign God being raised up so that the world can know that he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And this is in honor of the subordinate submission of second in command in Joshua. Joshua is the one on the ground, him and his boys doing heavy lifting. Y'all understand that? Doing the heavy lifting. They will not advance to the next level without getting through this warfare. And by application, so that you guys can see it, because sub point A is clear. The rod of God is his son, is he not? Jesus is the victory as we fight with him for true peace. I just want you to know that. He makes it clear in John 16, 33. In the world, you're gonna have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In me is your peace. I give you a peace the world cannot give you. And believers need to know that right well. In this world, you're gonna have a battle. And you better learn how to lift up that rod. Application and I'm done. What are we dealing with today? We're dealing with an enemy like Amalek, who is our secular, godless system. A secular, godless system. It is a cultural cult that is dominating our world. A secular, godless system. That's what you're dealing with. It has moved in so close on you and me that we don't know what to do. A secular, godless, tyrannical system. It has moved in so close that we don't know what to do. We don't know that it doesn't want you anymore. It wants your kids. A secular, godless, Amalekite system. A system of the flesh that wants to reject God and conform your children into its image. Do you know that? That's the Amalek we're fighting today as we make our way through the wilderness. And it has many, many manifestations. It is a religious system. It's an ideological system. It is a controlling, dominating system. It is a demonically inspired system that uses psychology, that uses the medical industry, that uses the monetary system, that uses the media outlets, that uses the, the, the goofy, what I call, court gestures of entertainment. Those court gesturing clowns that also draw you in and nudge you in to buy into their foolishness. They have a massive array of sources that are coming at you every second of the day. Their system is unified. You may not know it, but they know it. They know everything that you are listening to is connected to everything else that's connected to that system at its highest levels and highest structures coming down. Nothing you are watching today is by accident. It's all controlled to transform your mind, bring you into captivity to its system. Did y'all hear what I just said? Every bit of that demonic system. And in a minute, those clowns that we spend so much time laughing with. I'm talking to clowns. 
because America is being entertained to hell. Entertained to hell. Marx knew what to do. Hegel's knew what to do. They knew what to do. The Frankfurt, Frankfurt School knew what to do. They knew what to do. Entertain these people right out of understanding that we're in a warfare. Get these people drunk on Babylon's system. Take their armor from them. Take their sword from them. Take the word out of their mouth and keep them under an illusion that they're all right. While we systematically take the trenches of everything that constitutes your freedom, and one day they're going to simply say, we are in control. And you ain't going to even know what to do when that comes. You're not going to even know what to do. It's crazy because I'm reading through Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington and how they came up out of slavery. I need to stop. And how they fought against this stuff. They fought against the shackles of slavery. Not by the white man but by the mind of their own fellow former slave brother. Read Booker T. Washington. Read Frederick Douglass and see that they spent more time pedagoguing, trying to educate black people on how to be free in their mind. Free in your mind, because that's where real freedom is under God. And they expose all of these traps. They expose all of these mechanisms that we're dealing with now. The politics that keep you trapped. The politics that keep you divided. The politics that keeps you distracted from the real battles. Those brothers walked in their liberty. Do you know why? Because they took education seriously. They took it seriously. They educated themselves. They didn't wait for somebody else to educate them. And then when they discovered God gives you the capacity for self-learning. You can rise up against any system when you have a knowledge of the truth, not only of God, not only of yourself, but of your adversaries. And they fought hard to tell black people, you're free, stay free. And this is why today, I promise you, I'm done right here. You don't ever hear these fools in our African community, African-American community, exalting these two men. You never hear. You never hear it. Did you hear what I just stated? And there are many men like him. You're going to hear about Du Bois. You're going to hear about others. These are all socialist Marxists who hate God. You never hear about men that says, hey, God gave you the intrinsic capacity, along with his grace, to be free, to be self-determining, to prosper. You never hear about it in your public school. Did y'all hear what I just stated? We're going to have the offering at this time.